one and we are live everywhere and not on twitter and we're just going to leave it that way and it is what it is so it's fine welcome to the jonathan kogan show everybody very exciting day um very exciting day have an amazing guest um and i mean honestly if this was maybe like uh, two years ago i'd have to make like a formal introduction with some detail but now everybody knows who you are for good reasons uh dr robert malone welcome to the show thanks a lot jonathan thanks for having me on um it, these are absolutely interesting times uh and and you mentioned everybody knows who i am and that's kind of a, a two tribe situation um i am either the devil incarnate or a, a great american hero uh, depending on who you talk to. And then within the great American hero, there's a division between those who think that I'm a uh, controlled opposition actually sneakily working for the deep state to somehow convince people uh, to not accept the vaccine or resist the government. I'm not sure what the, uh, what the logic is there, uh, but it's widely spread versus those that are real supporters. So yeah, it's a it's an interesting landscape and, and it's all got even more complicated now because uh, Bobby Kennedy, uh, RFK Jr. is do polling fairly well and that's creating huge threat for the Democratic Party, which has brought out all of the, uh, the weaponized propaganda um, and, and I kind of get sucked up into that a little bit. <laughs> Did you did you watch actually the uh, today he was uh, in front of Congress? Did you watch that? No, I didn't. But I read Merrill Nass's uh, running account of it, uh, and and it seems like they've overstepped to such an extent that the story is not about their intended uh, storyline, which is Bobby Kennedy is a racist because he said uh, these truthful things about the relative specificity of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. This is just empirical science, scientific fact. And it doesn't imply that it was necessarily engineered to that purpose, but that those are the facts that it is relatively selective for some ethnic populations. But this has obviously been weaponized. Um, and Bobby was just citing that literature, but it's been weaponized uh, to try to portray him as uh, um, somebody that is uh, racist and um, uh, promoting the idea that, I, I don't know, the logic here, that somehow it's a good thing that they engineered the virus this way. I, I don't get it, but, but it's uh, clearly been, you know, the usual kind of corporate media um, weaponization strategy that uh, I've been subjected to and so many others have uh, um, through the last three years. It's one of the lovely things about having experienced it is that it becomes a lot easier to see through it. It doesn't make it hurt any less. It doesn't make it any more just, but at least you, you're you not confused. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I see uh, uh, just those buzzwords. And I now, when you, even from the outside, like, you know, I get it from a smaller group of people. I'm not there in the, you know, uh, you know not as many people know who I am like they do you. So you, you know, get a, the whole mainstream media, all that stuff. But just you see the same thing, like with with Bobby Kennedy too. It's uh, it, it, you just hear him, right? It's like base. They say these exact words all the time: baseless conspiracy theories, far right, anti-Semitic, racist. It's just the same thing. Where eventually, right. over time, everybody's yeah, going to be racist, anti-Semitic, far right, conspiracy theorist. Well, well put. The anti-Semitic was important to get in there. 
Um, because what, what happened, and we've tracked this in our Substack and written essays about it. Peter Hotez was at the tip of the spear. You'll remember the notorious Peter Hotez. Um, and uh, just as an aside, I know because you like comedy, um, I was thinking I need to start wearing a bow tie to confirm the uh, conspiracy theory <laughs> that I actually controlled our position. And yeah, why not? Um, of course, uh, you know, play it up. Uh, so Peter uh, actually wrote a book and a peer-reviewed publication in a very obscure Indian journal, uh, making the case that anti-vaxxers are also anti-Semites. It was really tortured logic. Um, based on a couple of anecdotal observations, uh, not the least of which is that he identifies as Jewish and, uh, and people uh, are critical of him and therefore they are anti-Semitic, anti-vaxxers uh, based on his own uh, ethnic uh, self-identity. Um, but what really was behind this, you know, all of this, you can see is the weaponization of language. And uh, the term anti-vaxxer uh, was absolutely a weaponized term to try to uh, belittle and demean and uh, um, defame uh, people that the pharmaceutical industry didn't want to uh, have a voice in national discourse. Just as an aside, this is all about the Overton window. What is allowable speech? Um, and uh, so anti-vaxxer has been uh, attempted to be uh, labeled as disallowed speech. Uh, and, um, and what they did was a tactical mistake. They defined anybody that was against vaccine mandates as an anti-vaxxer. It's actually Webster's dictionary was changed, which tells you something about who's controlling what goes into Webster's dictionary. And uh, so they, by default, um, defined uh, the plurality, if not the majority of Americans as anti-vaxxers because most Americans are against the mandates that were imposed on us. And suddenly the term anti-vaxxer no longer had its magical powers. And so they had to create some other words uh, to substitute for that. And so they tried to build the um, connection that anti-vaxxer was anti-Semitic because nobody's anti-Semitic, right? Uh, that's that's clearly outside the Overton window. You can't be anti-Semitic, uh, and otherwise you're not allowed to participate in national discourse. Uh, and so uh, that's that's how that played, and and that doesn't seem to have gotten the traction that they wanted. And so now they're they're having to go to even more extreme levels, and and of course the alt-right or far-right. Um, remember, they labeled Giorgio Maloney, uh, the current Italian prime minister, yeah. as far-right when she was in her election cycle and tried to draw parallels between her and Mussolini, uh, <laughs> neglecting to observe that actually uh, both uh, Mussolini's fascist regime as well as the German fascist regime actually came from the left. Uh, but uh, that's that's how this game is played of of psi uh, war or fifth generation warfare is is uh, through this the very sophisticated efforts to manipulate public perception. 
So let, let's di- actually, so let's dive into that. That's one of the biggest things I wanted to ask you. And I, I've heard you explain it all over the place, but for those who haven't heard it, um, what is fifth generation warfare? Where does it come from? What does it mean? And then if you can give, you know, some background on fourth and third and, you know, all the way to one, um, you know, how did we get here and, and just describe it for people who may not have heard the term. So one of the things about fifth generation warfare, which is a euphemism for psychological warfare, um, using modern technology uh, and psychology, uh, and, and it was basically designed, it's it's evolved largely since World War II. It was versions of it were deployed in World War II. Uh, the Fort Bragg um, Cywar unit uh, used to be the ghost army that, uh, basically did a trickery against the Germans before the landing in Normandy, where they used things like inflatable tanks and recorded sounds of armor uh, movements, et cetera, to uh, confuse the uh, German command. Uh, and out of that is, and by the way, those, those were all largely humanities and artists that were uh, recruited for that. So that's, that's the roots uh, and then in the UK, the roots uh, come from psychology in general. So this is GCHQ and its various operations run by MI5 and particularly MI6. And of course, they're all tied together. It's now very much uh, the intelligence community and the um, Five Eyes Alliance, which is the alliance of the intelligence communities of UK, US, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. Australia, pardon me. But uh, what is fifth gen warfare as opposed to the others? So let's just kind of walk through that a little bit. And the misnomer is to imagine that all of these generations of warfare exist independently so that you can't have first gen warfare together with fifth gen warfare, that they're all discrete categories. They're not, it's all a blending. And a case, strong case can be made that fifth gen warfare was deployed by Sun Tzu uh, back in the Chinese Empire. Um, and many of the core principles of fifth generation warfare are enumerated in Sun Tzu's uh, um, Art of War. So, Can you give an example uh, of that? I never, I never heard of that before. Uh, I, I don't have the quotes, uh, but, you know, for instance, uh, one of Sun Tzu's uh, great quotes is that the objective is... Um, to win uh, before you ever engage with the enemy. And you do that through these uh, propaganda methods. Um, there's a whole series of quotes uh, that, uh, from Sun Tzu that are often cited by uh, the academics and others uh, that um, have, have enabled fifth gen warfare. So let's start, I guess let's start off with what is fifth gen warfare. Um, This is a suite of technologies that were developed in response largely to guerrilla warfare, which of course has been ongoing for a long time. But in particular, uh, uh, I think a strong case can be made that the US military industrial complex has never won a battle against uh, a guerrilla insurgency. they, they lost the Vietnam War, uh, they, which is absolutely a guerrilla insurgency. Um, Syria is ongoing. 
Afghanistan, they clearly lost. It kind of goes on and on. Um, so uh, maybe talk about fourth generation warfare, which is this insurgency guerrilla type activity, which is hybrid. It's both kinetic warfare with bullets and then also um, uh, psi war in the sense of the insurgents will often tie to an underlying philosophy. Mao is a great example of, of, of uh, successful fourth generation warfare um, where a, uh, a political philosophy or religious philosophy is used to persuade actively a populace that um, the goals and objectives of the insurgents are aligned with the best interests of the populace, whether it's their religious interests and belief systems, et cetera. Um, and often this is done through a variety of different types of media and propaganda. Um, and in combination with kinetic warfare, you know, bullets and guns and things like this, typically not tanks and jet fighters because this is asymmetric warfare. Fourth generation warfare basically evolved um, as a counter to the uh, overwhelming force uh, and capabilities of the U.S. military coming off of World War II and our dominance geopolitically. And so if, you know, what's, what's an insurgent to do uh, in the face of atomic weapons and M1 tanks and F-18s and F-16s, et cetera? and, and uh, you know, uh, Spectre gunships, et cetera. Uh, and uh, so it was, it was devised that one could uh, win these guerrilla conflicts through a combination of uh, small skirmish kinetic uh, guerrilla battles and uh, propaganda uh, and uh, pushed out into the general populace to get the populace to endorse uh, the insurgency as opposed to, uh, you know, the American puppet government or whatever uh, the opposing force was. Fifth gen warfare was developed and, and really uh, refined in response to this. And uh, it has a number of key characteristics. Number one is that it, from the outside, fifth gen warfare looks leaderless. Uh, and so this takes a lesson from fourth gen warfare. One of the things that is very effective in Al Qaeda that I think um, was learned by those, the proponents of fifth gen warfare is that after Osama bin Laden was uh, assassinated, uh, the um, Al Qaeda organization became highly decentralized and just had uh, as a, a core concept certain strategic objectives, high-level strategic objectives, but it didn't have a bunch of tactics that were coordinated from a central command. So it had, it had the logic of, uh, you know, defeat the, uh, um, defeat the opponent, the religious opponent, uh, and uh, kill Americans, and we kind of don't care how you do it. Uh, this is our general mantra and go forth and, and achieve, you know, with uh, IEDs or whatever. 
And it, the consequence of that is that it makes it extremely hard for a central command-based uh, military to operate strategically against such a, an opponent because they can't identify a clear leader. So you'll notice with the drone strikes and everything, what we like to do, we, I speak, not me personally, but the United States uh, military industrial complex likes to do, is to identify an opponent and uh, assassinate them with a drone strike or with a sniper or such like. And this has been a, a core tactic of the intelligence community now for decades, uh, whether it's overthrow of elected governments or uh, elimination of uh, leader threats as identified threats to the United States. So, so the whole idea of decentralization. You mean, you mean spreading democracy? Uh, well, um, you warned me that you are a little sarcastic from time to time. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, so decentralized is a key feature that was taken from fourth gen warfare, advanced fourth gen warfare, and applied in the fifth gen warfare environment. So, in in a fully operational five G warfare, which has nothing to do with cell towers. Um, environment, uh, the people that are being subjected to this technology are unaware that it is happening. They're unaware of who the leader is. They're unaware that um, they are having messages and management of information deployed on them. Uh, they just accept it as a part of their daily routine like reading the New York Times, or the Washington Post, which are obviously now um, converted into government propaganda outlets for the United States government. So fifth gen warfare um, is typically not kinetic based. It is focused on civilian populations largely. There is no di differentiation between uh, combatants and non-combatants, all are are treated as combatants. Uh, um, so you, you are subjected in, to the same ethical structures that a formal uh, military combatant would be. In other words, they have no ethical boundaries as to what they can and will deploy on you in a fifth generation warfare environment. Um, Information and uh, the associated psychology of information like nudging, etc., is at the core of fifth generation warfare. And the, the battleground is no longer for territory in fifth gen as it is for uh, zero through fourth gen warfare, which is all about territory, conquering territory, controlling territory. In fifth generation warfare, the battleground is your mind, it is what you think and believe uh, it is it is the landscape of information that you are encountering so in under a fifth generation warfare operating environment all information is ideally controlled so you only have access to the information that these hidden hands you know because that's part of the definition is they should not be uh visible these hidden hands are controlling so that you only receive the information they want you to receive and you only receive it in channels that is spinning it so that you are getting them you're uh, receiving 
the direction on how to interpret this information from outside sources. You're not being allowed to think for yourself and you're not encouraged to think for yourself, but rather you're told what to think about the information that you're allowed to hear or see. And you can see this, for instance, as a great example recently, Project Veritas um, uh, in the post uh, um, James environment, where a lot of people don't want to deal with Project Veritas, but they recently captured an interview with a CNN producer in which he, he said the quiet part out loud that uh, CNN had had as its mission to ensure that Mr. Trump was not reelected and that he was taken out of office. That was an explicit mission at CNN. And they propagated that through their control of information, media, clips, etc. And that now they're going to pivot to climate change as their main agenda and are going to be pushing out all kinds of media clips about the warming earth and tragedies associated with heat waves, etc. Um, and, and climate events and emergencies. You can see it in great in uh, the BBC news, particularly on the weather, it's really clear. You can take uh, clips from weather broadcasts from 10 years ago where they have a pattern of temperatures across the UK. Um, and they show those on a green background because traditionally they're very green islands, UK and Ireland. And uh, um, now they will take the same temperature profiles and show them against a red and orange background indicating heat. It's unbelievable. So that's another example of, of this manipulation of information and imagery to evoke in you subtle um, uh, emotional and psychological reactions. Of course, all this plays into Matthias Desmet's uh, theories regarding mass formation or mass psychosis, um, terms which have been in the literature for a very long time. Uh, I did not invent them and neither did Matthias. Uh, and they can be traced certainly to Sigmund Freud, but they've been in use for a long time. So fifth gen warfare is psyops. It is psychological warfare in which uh, everything you think, believe, encounter, all information is carefully managed to evoke a psychological response on your part that's consistent with the uh, agenda, political agenda of those that are trying to push it forth. Fourth gen, walking backwards, as I mentioned, was is uh, the um, approach typically used by most guerrilla insurgencies across the world, which is a hybrid of kinetic and propaganda war, often with a religious component. And uh, it's still a battle for territory. The Afghanis won. They, you know, the Taliban now controls Afghanistan. Um, uh, a case can be made, strong case can be made that all the messaging about Ukraine uh, has been highly successful in the NATO countries and is absolutely fifth gen warfare, but uh, has been unsuccessful outside of NATO. Uh, another example you can see of fifth generation warfare is all of the confusing stories that have come out about the explosion and, and disruption of Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. Uh, it's pretty clear that the United States was responsible for that, but we put out, we, we the United States, 
State Department, uh, intelligence community, et cetera, and uh, allied journalists have pulled out, put out all kinds of confusing, improbable stories to try to obscure that issue. Stepping back, third generation warfare is basically the technology that gave the Germans the advantage in World War II, particularly at the start of World War II. Many historians suggest that the Maginot Line that France had uh, deployed was actually superior technology to what the Germans had at the start of the war. But what the Germans did was they had decentralized uh, command chains so that they pushed a battlefield um, uh, command authority down to uh, lower level field commanders. Think of Rommel for example, um, and allowed them to adapt to a battlefield situational uh, um, environments. And whereas traditional second generation warfare, like in World War I, um, still relied on a strong command chain, central command and, uh, and the aligned troops and their commanders, captains, uh, majors, colonels all just uh, performing according to direction from Central Command. But what the Germans did is they allowed uh, the battlefield commanders operational latitude, and that resulted in their ability to basically run around, to, to react in a much more prompt way to uh, threat environments uh, than those troops that were under centralized command. So that was the big uh, change in Third generation warfare, which still used kinetic weapons, although they were more advanced kinetic weapons. Second gen warfare is essentially World War I, or a case can be made the Civil War. We still have central command. Um, you know, when Stonewall Jackson was taken out, that resulted in a huge uh, change in the strategic landscape for the uh, Confederate States Army, uh, for instance, in the battles here around Richmond. Uh, so second gen has these more advanced uh, weaponry technologies, kinetic weapons uh, of uh, more advanced rifles, etc. First generation warfare uh, was more, uh, you can think of knights on horseback, uh, going back to the Peloponnesian War, these massive engagements of large armies um, that continued through the second generation warfare in the Civil War, for example, and uh, World War I, where you had battle lines and you had this sense of soldiers' ethics and uh, you would stand the line and advance on the line and they would shoot at you. Remember, that was the logic behind the British Army as it engaged with the colonial forces in the insurgent guerrilla uh, revolution that was the American uh, Revolution. And it was, you know, we can, there's the famous song about the Battle of 1812, right? Um, you know, hold your fire until you can see the whites of their eyes uh, down in Louisiana, Battle for New Orleans. Uh, um, that, that, you know, where, where American uh, irregulars were hiding behind trees and rocks and bushes, etc., and then shooting at uh, organized British platoons. Uh, 
that were all nicely lined up. That that wasn't supposed to be allowed ethically. Uh, that was against the rules of engagement back then. Um, so first gen um, still has battle lines. It has central command. The uh, technology of war is not advanced. It's still kind of swords and and uh, spears and pikes and things like that. And uh, Gen Zero is, uh, you can think of skirmishes between tribes using sticks and stones and other things. So that kind of walks you through the five generations. And each of those were displaced by an advance that allowed the next generation. And one of the one of the key questions right now outstanding in the military uh, strategists and theoreticians that think about fifth gen warfare. And I just uh, use this as a moment to shout out that Michael Flynn has a couple of books now that you can find on Amazon uh, with some colleagues. And there are, there are numerous people that have come up to me that have been involved in the fifth gen psyops uh, uh, units here in the United States. There's, as I mentioned, there's a large one in Fort Bragg. There's another one out on the West Coast, down by San Diego. Uh, um, and <coughs> um, uh, this, this, this technology is actually quite advanced. It's based in modern psychology, and it's also based in a very detailed understanding of uh, the nuances of the internet, so the use of trolls and bots. Uh, increasingly, a case can be made that the whole, what's, now appears to be disinformation campaign about Russian troll farms and bot farms was kind of a projection. Um, there, the, it is undeniable that the United Nations, MI5 and MI6 in the UK, they call it the 77th Brigade. And in units here in the United States, largely through subcontractors, have uh, deployed uh, um, large numbers of individuals who are paid by the government to interact on social media to advance um, uh, the government's agendas. Uh, and, you know, we call them trolls and bots, but in many cases, there are human beings behind that. In the UK, uh, I'm understanding that the 77th Brigade pays about 25,000 pounds per year for uh, somebody to sit in their home, in their flat, and write filth about whatever it is that the government wants them to write about. And it extends into things like the very active editing of Wikipedia, uh, which is absolutely an MI6 operation. Um, you can see their footprints all over the place. Uh, it, was, it appears to be one of the sock puppets associated with MI6 that was so aggressively editing my Wikipedia page for so long. But the, many others. Anybody that said anything about ivermectin, positive. Yeah, um, there's everybody. a number of these people. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and in the UN, it's it's now come out. The UN employed, um, yeah, it's a, quite a large number of of uh, trolls uh, to to support the agenda, uh, the the approved narrative about the COVID uh, um, management. So, so I hope that that's a, that was kind of a rambling introduction, backwards and forwards and backwards again. Uh, but I hope <laughs> no, it helps that was good. your uh, listeners to understand what we're talking about. And this is this is warfare. Um, I'd like to just close on that thread by pointing out that um, 
This is military-grade technology. It was developed for offshore combat. It was developed uh, during the Cold War uh, because the USSR absolutely did have one of the top fifth-gen warfare units in the world, um, and we felt we had to combat that and counter it. Uh, and um, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and uh, some of the other uh, subsequent events, the fall of Afghanistan, et cetera, or the recapturing of Afghanistan, uh, those military units kind of faced, uh, we could call it an existential crisis. How are they going to survive? How are they going to justify themselves? And what, what happened functionally was that they were deployed in the United States as part of the all of Department of Defense response to COVID. They were deployed against civilian populations using the full suite of technologies um, to support the government's position on uh, the management of uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. And uh, um, that includes the kind of extension of Operation Mockingbird that we can now see so clearly, the integration of the intelligence community, the government, and uh, large media. Uh, it's, it's documented in the Twitter files uh, um, very nicely. It's, you can see that. Uh, it's documented in a series of disclosures that have come from uh, the Canadian government, the Australian government, and the UK government, including the nudge units in the UK. And I argue that a government that is willing and able to deploy this extremely powerful uh, PSYOPs technology on its citizens has crossed an ethical line um, in which the concept of individual sovereignty, of free will on the part of the populace is obsolete. You can't make informed decisions as a voter when all information which you're receiving is actively manipulated using military-grade psychological operations technologies. And so the, the, we all get wound up about election integrity and electronic voting machines and Dominion and what happened in the last election, what happened to Kerry Lake, and, we can go on and on and on, depending on which side of the fence, which tribe you belong to. But um, I think that all of us can see that if a government believes that it's ethically acceptable to deploy fifth generation warfare, PSYOPs technology on its own citizens, then the logic of personal sovereignty and uh, integrity in voting uh, and free agency of the populace becomes completely obsolete. It's an outdated concept. Um, and I argue that what we've had, what we've been able to see now over the last three years, at least I have, many others, many, many were able to see this before. I was not. Uh, but now, it's pretty easy to see that uh, we are being actively manipulated uh, intellectually uh, by our government 
uh, to uh, advance the interests and agenda of the dominant party that controls the executive branch. And uh, um, I believe that what's happened is the ethics, quote unquote, you know, situational ethics of the intelligence community have become accepted as the norm for ethics across the entire administrative state. A intelligence community that previously felt that it was acceptable to assassinate, overturn elections, etc., regime change, uh, disrespect electoral decisions by uh, um, local populations, and engage in all kinds of nefarious activities because the ends justify the means, the means being advancing the interests of the imperial state of the United States and its economic stakeholders has now become the ethics of the entire uh, DC bureaucracy, the administrative state. And they believe that anything goes, that the ends justify the means. And so it's okay for them to do whatever they need in order to advance their uh, political and organizational agendas. That's where we're at right now, in my opinion. And that's not okay with me. It's not okay with many of us. It's not okay with anyone who listens to this podcast. That's for sure. So there's so many, there's so many questions. I, I was writing some of them down, but I mean, these, these are going to seem like silly questions, but what I can't understand when I think about this and I, many times throughout the week, I feel like I'm going crazy because I feel like we're in the twilight zone and that happens often. And I realize, wait, it really is happening. And it seems, it seems so crazy that it's happening. It's just, you know, you, you, you don't think it's real. You don't want to believe it's real, whatever. But the people that are helping with these psyops that are people that are these contractors or part of these institutions that are doing this with the, I don't know, with the idea, idea of whether it's like overthrowing democracy or, or, or implementing totalitarian controls. What I can't understand is these are people that live, you know, some of them live in the United States with kids that live in the United States. Like do, I don't understand. Do they, they're helping with this agenda and yet, but then their kids are going to grow up in a totalitarian environment. Like, why would they want that? I, I can't piece that together. Why people are willingly, uh, are, are willingly and able to work for like the demise of their own lifestyle. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Uh, and I think that uh, one of the things that I don't know, I don't understand the psychology either. Obviously, uh, a couple of data points. Um, it's long been known that about three quarters of any populace is readily um, hypnotized, among other things, um, psychologically manipulated. About 25% are highly resistant to these kinds of technologies. Milgram experiment, right? Um, it's also known, yeah, there's a number of them. And, and Huxley has a great interview you can find on YouTube that talks about this, you know, the, the uh, author of Brave New World uh, and the mentor of George Orwell of 1984 fame, uh, in which he argues that this is a good thing, that governments uh, need a populace in which about 25% are highly susceptible to psychological manipulation, and 50% are generally susceptible, and 25% are highly resistant. Uh, this is a good dynamic uh, for governments who seek to control the population. Um, uh, so uh, I think that there, my, my sense 
Well, let me put it this way. I, I wrote a substack in which I talked about the origins of the COVID crisis and my version of what's gone on here, in which I talk about uh, there's, there's no question that there have been nefarious actors. There's also no question that there has been a lot of incompetence. Um, and on top of that, there are uh, um, various agendas being advanced that have been uh, in development uh, for decades and decades. And uh, they all interact. So, uh, um, you know, Brett Weinstein, so long ago when we did that podcast with Steve Kirsch, a Dark Horse podcast hit, um, he posited that a lot of this was emergent phenomena because of interacting complex systems. And he still, I saw him at Freedom Fest last week, and he's still falling back to some extent on emergent properties of complex systems. Uh, but I think a lot of people uh, just go about their life. You know, they want to feed their family. They've got a nice government job. Uh, everything is compartmentalized intentionally. So they they're probably have plausible deniability. They don't really understand, you know, what's going on up at the top level, and they don't really want to know. They just want to do their little job, push their paper, do what they're told, and collect their paycheck and eventually their pension and feed their family and pay their mortgage. So there's that. Um, uh, it's, it's hard to convince people uh, who are economically dependent on a system that the system is a problem. Uh, um, but there absolutely are nefarious actors. Um, and it's hard to deny that there is evil in the world. I think that's been one of the things that has um, been a bit of a revolution for me as you know, somebody who has taken a position of being um, scientifically fact-based and grounded through my entire life, it's kind of been my persona, uh, is coming to the terms with the fact that there is evil in the world. And whether you want to call it the devil or what do you, you want to call it malignant narcissism, or, you know, there's a spectrum of words, but uh, for whatever reason, uh, a lot of the language of religion uh, for many of us becomes the only language that we know that can be used to accurately express what is transpiring. And it's, it's led me to become uh, more uh more religious, more uh, grounded in theology and recognizing that there is a transcendent truth and reality, uh, whether you want to call it a being or you want to call it a shared consciousness. There, there is mysterious things in the world uh, um, that's behind this. And, and some people are just impervious to uh, the ethical consciousness consequences of their actions and uh, they don't look out on the horizon and and as you're saying you know why wouldn't they think about the consequences for their children and then of course children to a certain strata of society particularly young are increasingly irrelevant uh they they are living in a world uh increasingly where a child uh, bearing and rearing is uh, considered 
uh, an optional and disagreeable task. Uh, why should we do that? Um, you know, when we can uh, invest our capital and our time in uh, seeking pleasure through other routes. I think that those that choose that pathway when they get more elderly, like myself and my wife, are going to find that their lives are remarkably vacant, um, devoid of purpose. But hey, that's just that's me and and many others that see the world the way I do. and Not everybody does. I, I agree with that. And I'm just having it, my first child six months ago, a little over six months ago, I could say, I mean, literally I'm the most apolitical uh, person ever. We're, this is an apolitical podcast. We don't believe in politics. We think it's all uh, a theatrics for covering up like a Ponzi scheme, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and that not only apolitical, but that I wasn't religious. Like I grew, I grew up going to temple because I like had to, but like, I was like religion, I'm just not my thing. And What's seen, what we have seen transpire over the past few years is kind of, I see it how you sort of described it, which is like, it's sort of forcing you to become more religious. It's almost like, did this all happen? Cause like, we don't believe in God. Like, I don't even know. It's almost like we have a God shaped hole. Like I think Vivek talks about it very well. And if you're not going to fill it with God, let's say, then you're going to fill it with something. And that could be climate change. That could be an individual or a political party. I'm like, that has to be what happened. So that resonates with me like really deeply. Um, so a couple of things, I don't know which one to ask first, but I'm gonna go with this one. So, uh, it seems like when you really see what's going on, you're seeing how all these different pieces are going. It seems like a massive global conspiracy with the, te- we, the, the, I say on the podcast all the time, there's two political classes. Now it's the elites and the peasants and we're on team peasant and the elites are losing their grip on controlling the world and the peasants are becoming free and they're trying to hold on. And that's kind of how I see it and how the audience sees it. And so my question is, is that. Lex Friedman just had on uh, Yuval Noah Harari, which if there was a global conspiracy, we know he would be the mouthpiece of it, right? But I wanted to approach the topic open-mindedly like we do on this podcast. And it's like, okay, if there's a global conspiracy where, you know, you see all this thing, like uh, political opposition in many countries either being jailed or can't run for re-election, whether it's like Bolsonaro, what they're doing to Trump, what's happening in Peru, all these other places, you see chaos everywhere. And it's like, it it seems like there's a, a... you know, plan for a one world government and CBDC, all this stuff. But then you've all said on Lex Freeman's podcast, more, more which, than same. we can, right. we can, we can, and, uh, and say, yes, there is a plan, but sure, sure. But here's what I, when, when he said this, I was like, okay, how do you explain this part? Then he goes, there was a plan by the elites and the most powerful people in the world to go into Iraq and get this, you know, to have this success there. It was a unipolar world and they failed miserably. It was planned out and everything, and it was they failed. In fact, many plans at that high of a level have failed. So, how do you explain that if they can't even get that right, or were they intentionally supposed to lose? I don't know. It seems like if they can't get that right, how do they get this whole massive global conspiracy correct? So, um, uh, just as a, a data point, now n- number one, this has been in planning for a very long time. That's now clear. Uh, a colleague of mine who I'm going to keep anonymous at the moment uh, recently sent me something, a document called the Kissinger Report, which I need to put out in the substack over the next couple of days, which was previously classified, developed under Nixon. Um, it is a full-throated justification for population control by any means. Um, 
And when you read through it, uh, you see that uh, many of, uh, you know, Kissinger led the development of this report. Remember, Kissinger is the mentor of Klaus Schwab. Um, I have personally, just as an illustration, all the way through this uh, COVID crisis, I've been pressed on the logic that um, this is really surreptitiously about population control. And I've said again and again and again, that may be true or false, but I don't have the receipts. I don't have the written documentation to demonstrate that that's the case. There's also a case to be made that much of what we've seen during the COVID crisis, uh, and Ernst Wolf has been one of the lead uh, proponents of this theory, uh, Ernst Wolf from Germany, uh, German economist, that this uh, had a strong component of uh, economic planning uh, to mitigate the risk of a broad economic collapse that was pending as we were reaching a liquidity crisis, uh, much as happened with the bank failures um, and uh, the, what we call the financial crisis uh, or the Great Recession. Uh, um, so there, I can say now, having read this Kissinger report and reviewed it, uh, I'm convinced that uh, there absolutely is a depopulation agenda. There's a population control agenda. And the things that are laid out in terms of action items are absolutely consistent with what we saw as the strange paradoxical mismanagement uh, of the COVID crisis, things that were done that just made absolutely no sense at all from a public health standpoint. And it was hard to, to interpret them as having anything other than uh, a, a, a basis in a hidden agenda, one or more hidden agendas. And with this Kissinger report that's been declassified, I think we've got pretty close to a smoking gun about the depopulation agenda. And I, just like recently, for instance, I all the way through, I've been saying, no, 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 graphene oxide in the, in the formulations, I think that's probably an artifact. Um, you know, I don't see clear data. Nobody's done solid testing. Um, and then, boom, the document drops, and Pfizer has graphene oxide listed as a component of the formulations. And so suddenly, Ryan Cole and I both have to say, I'm sorry, we're wrong. Um, you were right. Uh, there is graphene oxide here. Um, that doesn't mean that we go all the way to the, the uh, vaccines are making you magnetic and uh, enabling uh, 5G control of your mind, but uh, graphene oxide is in the formulations uh, for, for what it's worth. Uh, and, and likewise, I think that we're, we're going to see gradual drip, drip, drip leaks of information that are going to force those of us who have uh, taken a stance that we aren't going to buy into, quote, conspiracy theories when we don't see the artifacts to, to support that, we're going to continue to have to open our aperture and say, hey, no, we've got new data coming in, and it's consistent with this uh, thesis that was previously considered a conspiracy theory. Um, and uh, 
One of those is depopulation. So the, these these agendas. You you mentioned Harari uh, in uh, Harari's thesis that uh, um, the fourth industrial revolution is going to give rise to the fusion of man and machine, and we're all going to become man machine hybrids, and this is a good thing, and that. Uh, um, uh, Homo Deus, right? Man is God. Uh, we no longer need God. We can substitute humanity for God, and we can control our own futures and our own evolution uh, through this fusion of men and machines uh, in the form of AI, implantable chips, you know, Neuralink, all all this other technology, uh, um, you know, uh, functional augmentation, not just for war fighters. Uh, exoskeletons and and uh, all that very you know matrixy kind of stuff. Uh, um, the question is, do do we really want to live in that world, in that fourth industrial revolution world that um, Yuval Harari envisions for us in a post uh, religious world, you know, in a world uh, in which uh, there's an infinite number of genders. Uh, a, a world in which uh, um, in which uh, we give up our personal autonomy uh, through uh, you know these various uh, instruments of central bank digital currency constant surveillance um, and the collection of massive massive amounts of data on every single one of us so that each of us can basically be predicted using a virtual model um, driven by machine learning or deep learning. Uh, and in theory, it appears, the thesis is that if we only had enough data, the reason why um, command economies in Marxism, let's say it, have failed in the past is basically the thesis is because we haven't had enough data. And now we can get enough data. We can process that data. And we have the tools to process that data. Um, and so we can make uh, a centralized command economy Marxist world work in which, uh, you know, they said it. They said, again, the quiet part out loud, uh, you will own nothing and be happy because everything you think, feel, believe, encounter will be manipulated. You'll live in 15-minute cities in which you'll have a high degree of surveillance and no crime because uh, you'll basically be subjected to uh, an environment that was predicted by the film Minority Report in which a thought crime uh, will be disallowed. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's amazingly consistent uh, with the... Uh, dystopian visions of 1984 and Brave New World and so many other texts, as well as the dystopian visions of the cyberpunk uh, science fiction genre, uh, in which it's imagined that there will be the rise of a counterforce of uh, punks, that's hence the name, uh, this originated in the 70s when we had punk music, uh, punks, which would uh, be resistant to these uh, overlord authorities and act in all kinds of different ways to subvert them largely through digital means. 
that's kind of manifesting. Uh, and um, I, I think that uh, Mr. Harari is grossly naive. You, if you read his books, um, uh, he is not much of a scientist. He's not a rigorous thinker. He's more of a imagineering, a visionary, uh, promoting a a vision which is consistent with uh, the, frankly, the financial interests of the World Economic Forum, which is this trade organization of the thousand largest companies in the world that advocate that they should be the ones ruling the world um, because they could do it more efficiently than uh for instance, democratically elected governments. He often uh, he often refers to it as a digital dictatorship too. You still there, Jonathan? I think I've lost my host. Maybe I just put him to sleep. Jonathan, are you there? Testing, testing. So we appear to have, uh, oh, there's uh, Jonathan is logging back in again. But you've all know Harari, sorry about that. You've all know Harari often uh, describes it as a digital dictatorship. That's the term he uses often. Yes. That there's going to be, you know, that centralized committee. It, it's just so dystopian and, and, and something I, I, I tweeted this recently. I thought it was really brilliant. Actually, it's very simple though. That basically these forces are branding dystopia as utopia. Like it just seems like everything that is dystopian, they're branding as like phenomenal and utopian. It's going to be fantastic. You're, and the amount of people that are cheering on or cheering in the tyranny is like mind blowing. Maybe it's just that twenty five percent you were talking about thirty percent, um, but it seems like a lot, which very makes you want to go. Yeah, which makes you want to go back a little bit uh when well actually before we go back how this might be a silly question question as well but in all seriousness you were talking about how uh in fourth generation warfare before that usually the way you win is capturing you know an air, a territory or a piece of land or you know something like that how do you win fifth generation warfare what's the uh, final prize so there's a great quote uh the only people that win in fifth generation warfare are the people who don't play <laughs> okay um, it's profoundly corrupting. Uh, it, for instance, it's hard to engage in social media and not be influenced by the trolls and bots and, and the haters, etc. Um, I can tell you that I, I have uh, problems uh, with um, motivation uh, and uh, um, being able to continue to engage in this battle space when I'm constantly subjected to haters, I have a, a portfolio of haters, uh, some of which appear to be paid agents um, that are attacking me on a daily basis. And then you have these uh, useful idiots that will then regurgitate that. Um, and uh, it's, it's, hard, it's hard not to be affected uh, when you're in a fifth generation battlefield um, because the lies are rampant. The ethics are non-existent. I mean, it is an anything goes 
And if you want to, I've, I've written essays on, for instance, the sins of information warfare. There are those in this area, people that I have previously spoken with um, at rallies, that advance the notion that if they do it to us, we can do it to them. And what they don't realize is if you accept that ethic, you become the enemy. You become like them. And uh, it is it is really, really tough to maintain your personal integrity and maintain a core uh, respect for humanity uh, and a commitment to community when you're in uh, this battlefield environment in which uh, um, it's, it's like a surrealist landscape um, where you can't, you can never know what's true, what's real. Um, everything is fluid and morphing around you. Uh, um, and uh, and it's, it's really tough uh, psychologically and intellectually. Um, but doesn't and, it, doesn't uh, it just test you? Isn't it just a binary test though of, are you a principled person or not? You either, you either have principles that you stick to, or then you end up doing the same thing to other people, which means you never had principles in the first place. Yes. Yeah, so if that's your criteria, you're going to end up with a very, very small population of people that meet, <laughs> meet <laughs> okay, your filter. in my experience. <laughs> uh, um, uh, yeah. So that this is, this is one of the, the tensions is in if you want to build a movement, you want to have members of that movement. Uh, but um, there's a series of dynamics that have played out historically. Uh, in another essay, I talk about the Jacobins and the French Revolution as just one example. Um, there are some dynamics that happen in these tribal environments in which. Uh, People who, it's easy to get caught up in the cult of personality and uh, seeking attention. And um, for those who, I mean, for my wife and I that write this substack, stack, uh, the battlefield is uh, opportunity-rich space. There's just no end of, of valid uh, issues to discuss. And we put out a substack every day. Um, and people are amazed that we, we cover such a broad landscape, but Hey, there's a lot of stuff to talk about, but for people that aren't <laughs> sure is. Uh, so intellectually adept or however you want to say it, um, they, if they want to get attention and clicks and likes and revenue and all the things that comes with that, they tend to fall back on the fear porn model of CNN and, and so many of the other corporate media in which um, to get attention, they have to say more and more extreme things. And so you end up with uh, the assertions about snake venom and uh, that the government is going to put snake venom in the water, you know, uh, advanced by a chiropractor with no background in biochemistry, who apparently is completely clueless about what would happen even if you could make enough snake venom peptide to contaminate an urban water supply um, and people were to take it orally, it would just get degraded in the gut. Um, but, but they even but did better than that. They put a neurotoxin fluoride in the water. Um, so this, 
this whole thing reminds me of back in the 70s when there was a frantic uh, fear about uh, chemists uh, from the San Francisco Bay Area putting uh, lysergic acid diethylamide or LSD in all the water supplies. And um, that would take a heck of a lot of LSD uh, to, <laughs> to have an impact on an urban population. Uh, so the, my point is that there becomes a dynamic where people become more and more extreme within one of these tribes in order to get attention and likes and followers and all that dynamic. And they, they tend to become decoupled from reality. And uh, what happens is both sides, in this case, if we talk about a, a you know, bimodal distribution, whether you want to call it left or right, or you want to call it Marxists and libertarians, or there's a whole different you know, set of dimensions that you can use. But if you want to set things up as a binary and say, we basically have two tribes and they're in opposition, both tribes have internal dynamics that Matthias Desmond would call countermass formation that drives them to the extremes um, and will result in a situation in which those members of that tribe, that belief structure, however you want to phrase it, uh, will be um, uh, metaphorically beheaded using the metaphor of, of uh, the Jacobins in the French Revolution. Um, if you're not extreme enough, then you must be with the other side and you need to be got rid of. Um, and so it, it creates, it, it, there's, there's this organic process that drives people apart. Um, and then that can be readily exploited, of course, by people that understand fifth generation warfare. Um, the divide and conquer strategy is very, very effective and time tested. Um, and uh, so uh, all one needs to do is seed into one of these kind of paranoid environments uh, the logic that uh, Joseph is um, uh, working for the other side. He's a uh, controlled opposition or he's in a surreptitious agent or whatever the thing is. And then suddenly everybody that's out there on the fringes that's uh, worried about things or paranoid um, or just wants to get clicks and likes and, and followers starts regurgitating whatever this defamation is, and you find yourself in the same position as, uh, you know, business insider spouting crazy stuff about Bobby Kennedy or the recent uh, congressional hearings. Uh, it's, it's, it's very deep in humans, these things. And um, I don't think we're ever going to get around it. It's, it's fun fundamental to... Uh, the human condition is we have this tendency towards paranoia, fear. Um, I'm always reminded of the, the classic line from Frank Herbert that's quoted in Dune, uh, the movie frequently, but anybody that read the books is well familiar. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is a, can be weaponized um, to completely shut down people's cognitive processes and just allow their lizard brain to act. And uh, once that happens, once you deploy fear, whether it's fear of the Russians or the A-bomb or um, the aliens, uh, um, people, people lose their ability to think logically. 
I mean, we've we've seen that perfectly. It, it's so ironic that the lizard people want you to use your lizard brain and, you know, they put fear. It's really ironic. But uh, divide and conquer, we talk about that all the time on this podcast. And it's, seem, it's amazing what you said, actually. It's like it's, a, it's like a self-reinforcement site. It's like the people who are responsible for imposing this fifth generation warfare on the populace knows that the response of that is actually a self-reinforcement cycle that keeps the whole thing going longer and more deeper. Like the response enforces the original action. Yeah. And so then, you know, it just, it's unbelievable. And, it's and it's it amazing. Be, it but, can be tactically manipulated by insertion of narratives um, at the appropriate time. And uh, this is, uh, there is a school of thought that, uh, uh, what transpired between myself and Joe Rogan on uh, the end of twenty, late December twenty twenty one, was what destroyed their narrative. It gave people a counter narrative that allowed them to free themselves from this psychological manipulation that was being deployed on them. And, uh, you know, I was just talking truth. I was just saying this, you know, this is the way things are. This is what I see and the physicians around me see. And, and I wasn't trying to, uh, be a revolutionary. I was just trying to be careful to speak truth, knowing that I would be attacked for it. But, um, somehow that simple act of telling truth to the kind of audience that Joe Rogan, um, is able to capture, and I've I've heard estimates that over a hundred million people watch that. But then um, David wow. Martin's uh, opening talk at Brussels in a recent uh, testimony International COVID Summit in into the European Parliament, I understand has been seen by over two billion people. Come um, on, because it was amplified in Eastern Europe. Uh, Oh, wow. That's fantastic. That was, we did a whole podcast on that. That was unbelievable. And by the way, when I heard you on Joe Rogan, I'll never forget. I, I know it wasn't, you know, we talked about it previously in this podcast, but when you said, I know it comes from, you know, the lineage of, you know, research and all that stuff, but, and Matthias Desmond, all that stuff. But when you said mass formation psychosis, when you said that on Joe Rogan, all of a sudden in my head, I was like, oh my God. And you started Ding. explaining it and what you articulated. <laughs> I was like, Holy shit, this, oh my God. And then I shared it with all my friends in my group chat and I immediately got responses of an NPR and a Business Insider article of how you're a fringe uh, yeah. physician and a whack job and all this stuff and yeah, conspiracy fringe, theorists. Fringe, and I go, guys, fringe but physician that's captured literally 10 billion <laughs> in uh, grants and contracts <laughs> yeah. for my clients, has over 100 uh, peer reviewed academic publications and over 15 patents, of which a number of them are behind me uh, um, that cover uh, DNA. <laughs> we have a lot of fringe. <laughs> Pretty fringe. We had we had fringe epidemiologist Jay Bhattacharya is also fringe epidemiologist. We've had him on the podcast. So oh, yeah. fringe, you know, take it with the everyone knows what that means no, now. It's, it's um, yeah, we're, but, we're uh, now getting to the point where we have a language uh, translator. Uh, when when they use the term yeah. fringe or far right, it means right. I immediately go listen to that person yeah. immediately. I'm, I, I was like, we got another one on the team, baby. Which, Let's go. <laughs> which, which shows that they're losing that war of words, at least within our cohort. And the problem is it's so easy to convince ourselves that because we're all talking to each other, that um, re, the, we, we are in our own reality bubble. And the problem is that as we sit within our reality bubble talking to each other, 
using the language that we all understand, it uh, our opponents are able to create boundaries that make it so that our words cannot reach the persuadable middle. Wow, that's so. I I think about that. So from how people react in your your personal experience after that Joe Rogan, well, I'll ask. Yeah, okay, after that Joe Rogan podcast, you were shoved in the public public spotlight, probably against your own intentions. You probably didn't even want that because it's nicer to have a private life. But there's you know there's benefits. So how people reacted and people within your inner circle and strangers compared to you, you know, you still travel around now to all different places and talk to people. Is the reception different? Is the cohort getting larger? Are you seeing a difference or do like you just said, I only see it because I'm in the cohort. So one of the problems is that I, uh, when I make, when I'm out in public, uh, there was a period of time where I was getting a lot of, like I could walk through an airport and three or four or five people would, uh, recognize me. Uh, young men would fist bump me, which was an odd in, encounter. Um, and uh, that's largely died down. Um, I was just at Freedom Fest and uh, um, I was only there. I wasn't invited uh, by the organization. I'm talking about Freedom Fest in Memphis. And I was only there because somebody that's setting up a super PAC for RFK Jr. wanted me to be there uh, and wanted me to participate in some uh, questioning of RFK for press and some other things. So uh, so I was just there in, out and about. And uh, it wasn't anywhere near the crush that it was at Freedom Fest in Las Vegas uh, last year. Uh, where I was kind of mobbed, um, and uh, but is that a good thing? Ironically, which is like more people are aware, so they don't have to go to these events because they're like, "Oh, we know now." I, I don't like, know. You know what I, don't I mean? Know the answer, but but to get to your point about the public encounters and pressure, um, uh, I was really struck. You know, there's there's always some degree of starstruck. Oh, Doctor Malone, you know, you're such a hero. Blah blah blah, which is okay. Um, I appreciate your support. There's one young woman uh, from Northern California that came and started talking to me, uh, a very intellectual, skinny woman, um, you know, uh, uh, glasses and all that. Um, and, and, uh, and she started talking to me, and as she became a little more comfortable talking to me, she said, well, you know, a lot of people think you're controlled opposition and you know, it was kind of implied that she was thinking that too. Uh, and so then I had to go down the pathway of what does that actually mean? Uh, what is the accusation? What's the data behind it? What I've actually done? What I've actually said? Um, which is grossly inconsistent with the idea that I'm an agent of the government uh, because I'm busy doing my best to put a needle in the eye of the government. Uh, but, uh, um, and have been all the way through this. And so I walked her through that and she seemed to drop her guard. But there's the, these chaos agents have been very effective at uh, spreading a lot of uh, um, misinformation about me. Uh, I, I, I counted eight different ways I've been accused of being a mass murderer, ranging from I'm a mass murderer because I invented the technology uh, to I'm a mass murderer because I supported Matthias Desmond. 
uh, to because that allowed the global predators to get away with their global predation. So I was enabling the global predators, therefore I'm a mass murderer. Uh, and uh, um, then there's the whole school of thought that I was a mass murderer because I raised concerns about the vaccines and the vaccines would have saved so many more lives if it hadn't been for me speaking out. Um, the, okay, the, but that's factually untrue. Uh, oh, it doesn't matter. See, that's the thing in 5G warfare. Truth is completely irrelevant. Oh my gosh. And you have to come to terms with that. You have to come to terms with the fact that you're in a battlefield in which, unlike traditional warfare, there are no accepted rules of engagement. Everybody is a combatant. And, um, and, and there are no ethics. They will do and say anything based on the utilitarian principle that the ends justify the means. And so if they can vilify you, and thereby make it so that your words cannot be heard, um, that's a win. That's acceptable. If, if that's why I, I have these lawsuits about malicious defamation is because a malicious defamation has become normative. Uh, and it all goes back to a case called Sullivan versus the New York Times. And that's way down a rabbit hole. But uh, that's... Uh, that was advanced at the same time that Mockingbird was advanced. Um, this, this weaponization of uh, malicious defamation uh, for political purposes and propaganda purposes is absolutely systematic. And I never would have been aware of it if I hadn't been subjected to it. Uh, but now having, having seen it and Paul Merrick seen it and so many others, uh, um, you can't ever unsee it. I use the metaphor. It's like you walk into a dark room and you bump into the light switch and you see things you can never unsee. Uh, you, you become aware of how deeply and systematically and for such a long time, the U.S. government has been propagandizing all of us. So let, let me ask you just a, a personal question real quick, which is, you know, you you've already done a lot in the past few years. You don't, you know, you, there's no, why not just delete the, just, just X out of this game, you know, just live on the farm, <laughs> you know, just why not? Why not just, you know, I've done my, the best I can yeah. delete the social media, delete everything, live happily ever after. So um, for one, I had uh, a consulting practice that I developed together with my wife for over 20 years, RW Malone, MD, LLC. Um, I consciously, we consciously chose to destroy that um, when we came out and spoke about things. We knew that that was no longer going to be a viable business model and that I would be burning a lot of my former clients and would become persona non grata in that sector. Uh, and in fact, that's the case. Uh, um, I don't expect to ever get security clearance with the Department of Defense again. Uh, for example, nor would I want it. Uh, and now Substack is our primary means to support that and selling horses. Uh, so we all got to pay the bills. I got to feed the horses. Uh, I got to buy fuel and diesel and, and maintain the tractor and everything else. And I have to have revenue. So Substack has enabled that. Um, I don't have a Malone 
a foundation backed by multiple billionaires donating large sums of money like some of my colleagues do. Uh, I'm not selling vitamins and supplements. Uh, I never have practiced medicine. I've always been a clinical researcher. Uh, and um, so I don't have a choice. My wife and I don't have a choice. We have to stay in the game. Uh, and this part of why the studio here is what it is uh, with its capabilities is so that I can interact with folks like you in a professional way or uh, with Real America's Voice or Steve Bannon or whomever. Uh, and I can start putting out podcasts of my own uh, through Substack or other mechanisms. I Basically, I don't have a choice to just step back. I have taken a bit of a hiatus over the last two months and really cut back on my travel schedule. And frankly, I was just getting beaten down by the constant, constant attacks. Uh, and I needed to step away. And people have noticed that I have more color. Um, I'm much healthier. Uh, I'm, I've dropped, uh, I was over 190. Uh, today I was at 165 um, and continuing oh, wow. to drop. Uh, and I'm working hard at it. And uh, physically, I'm in better shape. I used to be able to outwork a 20-year-old uh, just because I know how to use my body, and I've been working with my hands and my body my whole life uh, as a farmer and a carpenter. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm in much better condition now, uh, and I'm traveling a lot less. It's a lot better for mental health. Uh, and uh, there's the whole issue of the burden of responsibility when you're given a gift of, of being able to reach people with your voice and your logic and your writing um, uh, to uh, carry on with that responsibility. Um, and that is, that's kind of how I see it, is I was given an unexpected gift uh, and I should use it wisely in in the service of uh, my country and my fellow citizens uh, in opposition to what I see as the evil that has been revealed to all of us. Uh, and, and I don't want to shirk that responsibility just because it would be convenient. Hope I've answered your question. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, the two things I thought, um, you know, what Matthias Desmond says is, you know, the best way to counter this is you got to keep talking. And so I thought that was a big reason that might've been behind yeah. you. You know, you got to keep speaking up. That's the only way to counter it. Otherwise just talk, the talk, talk, and speak up. Even deeper into the crazy, into the mass formation. Yeah, so there's that. Right. And that's why Bobby that's why Bobby Kenny's also a big threat because he has a much bigger platform now because of that. Which um uh well I guess okay, fine, we'll end on this. Um well I guess first I just want to ask just I'm curious. So when you're able to financially retire, will you retire? Or will you still think you will stay I, in the public spotlight? I doubt too? that um, you know, I'm not making that much off a of Substack. Um <laughs> you know what I mean. Whenever you're able to um uh you know get financial in 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 this environment are any of us ever going to be financially stable in a world where we're facing hyperinflation uh central bank digital currency uh and in all of the ancillary uh toolkit um those of us that are more middle class 
are, are never going to be uh, free of the specter of the boot on our neck. Uh, um, so I don't, I don't foresee a time in which I would have 10 million in gold in the bank and I can just tell everybody to go, you know, bite. Um, I just don't see it happening. And, and I don't know that I could find happiness in a world in which I was just uh, um, following the uh, guidance of Voltaire and going and working in the garden. Uh, um, so I, I, I don't know. I'm, you know, Seymour Hirsch is still banging away, uh, revealing stuff. Uh, yeah. And um, I just read another one of his articles this morning. Uh, and um, I hope that, you know, what a gift to be able to contribute to society uh, to the point, you know, until such time as my mind uh, um, becomes unhinged. Uh, I'd like to, you know, it's in, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, self-fulfillment is at the top. And uh, the opportunity to uh, engage with younger minds like yours and serve as a mentor and uh, be a steadying voice, uh, hopefully of reason and balance. Uh, I think these are things the world desperately needs. And uh, um, if I can provide value by serving in that way, uh, then then um, I can go to my grave a happy man. Yeah, no, and it's really helpful for someone like myself. And, um, you know, it's important to stay healthy, too. I'm just curious when, so I'm 34. How old are you? You're about 65? 64. 64. So you're really, really old. Uh, so Ancient. when you were 34 and you thought of someone <laughs> or knew someone that was 64, were you thinking, like, oh my God, that's so old? That person's so old. But compare that to how you feel now. Do you actually feel younger than you thought you would feel at 64? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, I, I could not have imagined that I would have the health and the, and the life that I have right now when I was 34. And when I was in 34, I was, um, in the throes of fit, finishing medis, medical school and starting a family and, uh, a, an, a young academic caught up in that world. Uh, my wife and I have always been kind of old souls in that even when we were teenagers, when we came together, we were very aware of uh, kind of the arc of our lives and that there would come a time when we would be older and uh, we should be aware of that uh, as even as we were younger. Um, and, uh, Maybe that has something to do with her having been the last of four children. Her, her, most of her siblings were born in the UK, in London, um, in the poorhouse during the war, during World War II. So she has a kind of a family memory that's more Edwardian. Uh, and um, so we've, we've always, and we're both bookworms. Uh, when we were young, so very aware 
of the teachings of literature having to do with the passage of time. So maybe we're a little different from most folks that grew up in the 70s in the central coast of California. Uh, but, um, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, you catch the subtext. Uh, so, um, but also, you know, lived in that culture. Uh, so, you know, I was an avid rock climber and a hiker. I uh, did the Muir Trail when I was 15. Um, uh, hung out in Yosemite a lot, uh, climbing. Uh, so, uh, you know, be that as it may, we, 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 I think we both feel now that we are reaping the benefits of uh, this long-standing commitment. We're, we're coming up on our 45th wedding anniversary this year. And um, we just have, or I guess it's uh, next February. Uh, you know, we, we've made some ethical commitments to each other and how we live, knowing that uh, the dividends for that and the investment in our education, et cetera, would only really kick in when we um, and uh, I, I got to say, I, the other day, Father's Day, I spent with our older son and, and his wife and their two children, age two and four and a half. And um, I was stunned at how hard it is to raise young children. <laughs> and, and my comment was, I must have retrograde amnesia because of the trauma <laughs> of having two young kids because I'd forgotten all that. And man, it is hard work. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm so glad we're through that. <laughs> and, um, and there's also just as Bobby, uh, does, you know, people remark about his physical fitness. And, uh, I was once accused of being the physician that is prescribing him hormone therapy. Uh, <laughs> but, but many of us in our age cohort are, uh, taking these, uh, modern, uh, bioidentical hormone supplements, which, uh, is really extending our our functional lifespan as as uh, um, active beings, uh, and um, we'll see how that plays out over time. But yeah, I do feel in some ways like you know I'm, I'm I I've recovered from COVID and from the jab and my my post jab damage. Uh, and I'm I'm really increasingly on the mend, uh, working on the farm, and uh, I do feel younger than I felt a few years ago. The weight loss helps, but a commitment to healthy living, I think, is super important as you get older, and probably also important as a younger person. But through much of our lives, Jill and I, we were just so busy trying to pay the rent, you know, and. and our bills, most of our lives we spent, you know, with almost nothing in the bank, uh, just trying to make ends meet like most other people. And that, that uh, doesn't always yeah, lend itself to yeah, healthy living. I was to say healthy living, also healthy relationships uh, is vital. So have, you know, congratulations on coming up on the 45 years. That's, that's, that's wild. Um, it's amazing though. And um you know, healthy relationships, being surrounded by good people, then eating health, like you living on the farm um, is, I'm absolutely envious of, to be honest. I want to live on a farm one day as well. 
Um, but um, we, I was going to ask you one last question. We were we were dead broke basically. Um, we had to abandon our our property in northern Georgia because it was so deeply underwater after the real estate collapse. And so we did a deed in lieu of foreclosure, which meant we couldn't get a loan. My credit score is finally just a couple of months ago washed that off. Uh, we bought the property as unimproved hay field from the owner at 5%. And uh, it's all paid off now. There's not a thing on this property that we don't own outright, my tractor and cars and everything else. And um, we homesteaded it. Uh, literally, we lived in an office trailer um, uh, illegally. Uh, and there was no water, no septic, no electric, no fences. Uh, we used a porta potty. Uh, we went to the local health club, which is about half an hour north, to get showers. Uh, and Come we on. gradually built out. That's six years ago. Um, so my point is, you can do it. It is probably one of the most aggressive actions of noncompliance that you can do uh, with the system that's been set up for all of us. It's basically to homestead. Um, on Actually, I'll, I'll end with this. Uh, it was on, on Joe Rogan, uh, a rapper, Killer Mike, was just on there, and he said uh, something along the lines of the most revolutionary act you could do is growing your own tomato, which was just kind of signaling how many people are eating their own food, are able to really, are outside of a centralized system of any sort, whether it's food, you know, financially, you know, trading with a neighbor, stuff like that. They just, they got us all centralized where they can control us. We need to become more decentralized, more active locally, um, you know. I used to laugh at people who would homeschool their children, but now I think if you're in a good community and you homeschool with other parents, it's brilliant. Uh, it's just unbelievable. I never thought that we would. We, we homeschooled would, both our sons. You kind of, you're ahead of, it's almost like I look at it now, like you were just ahead of your time. I just, I do think things changed more recently than the early 2000s, but I'm sure I'm pretty indoctrinated as well. I was definitely brainwashed. That's for sure. Up is down, left is right, but that, you know, whatever. Um, but now we know. So, um, I guess, uh, uh, yeah, I was going to play a clip from the testimony today, but, but you gave me a lot of your time and, and I, I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, Dr. Robert Malone, I really appreciate you coming on. Can you, uh, share with people how they find you, find your stuff, uh, can subscribe to you, can help you so you can survive on your farm and not have to go to the local health center to shower? <laughs> um, well, thank you, Jonathan. More importantly, buy alfalfa for the mares, uh, uh, and diesel for the tractor. Um, so thanks for having me on, Jonathan. It's been a fun chat. Uh, and uh, our our primary feed, data feed, is the daily uh, substack, rwmalonemd.substack.com. And uh, because we've been committed to getting the information out, we don't require that you pay. So you can subscribe for free. and It'll come to your email inbox, so long as you're not using a Microsoft product. Otherwise, it'll go to your spam. And uh, um, but if you want to subscribe uh, and pay the five bucks a month, uh, we're very grateful. Uh, the uh, nonprofit is uh, the Malone Institute, so that's maloneinstitute.org. And on that, you can find more detailed, lengthy uh, information. We'll be posting the Kissinger. A report on that as a PDF. 
You can find a spreadsheet that we took months for us to develop with some partners, excuse me, partners in Europe. It's the definitive list of all of the World Economic Forum Young Leader graduates. These are all the indoctrinated people that are throughout uh, Western governments and industry. And you can see who they are when they graduated. Uh, Elon Musk is a graduate. Uh, Come on. I was going to say all these people that just happen to be running the world right now. So ironic. I didn't know he yeah. was on it, though. Yeah, he's graduated last year. Um, it's a five-year indoctrination training program. Uh, and um, and there are spread in industries all across the entire sector, uh, not just in politics. And uh, so you can find those names and where they work and what their backgrounds are and when they graduated and all that kind of stuff in an Excel spreadsheet that you can uh, sort, you know, by whatever criteria you want. So there's that's at maloneinstitute.org. And then we're on uh, Twitter, Getter, Gab, and True Social at RWMaloneMD. And I, I will link all of those below. Everyone, go subscribe. Pay the $5. If you can't, subscribe for free. I don't see why not. Uh, I'll link all of those, Malone Institute, and then all your social media channels. And uh, Dr. Malone, thank you again. Uh, genuinely, I really appreciate it. I'm sure the audience, I could speak for them, really appreciate it. And um, I'm sure it's really difficult if, especially with all the attacks, not only for like months or weeks, but for years. Uh, so that's intense. Um, I know what it's like to get a little bit of blowback, but not at your scale. So I commend you for that and uh, stay in the fight. And if we can ever help or if I can ever add value in any way, please don't hesitate to reach out. And um, thank you again for coming on. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. Bye-bye, everyone.